How's everybody doing today? Awesome. Oh, isn't it a great start with a couple baptisms? It's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, glad we got to baptize Sean today and Caden the other day. And, and um, it's just awesome. I love that. It's, it's why we do what we do. It's why we're here. Make disciples. So, well, hey, this is a great weekend. It's a, it's a celebratory weekend for our, our nation. It's, we celebrate our, what is it now, 246th year of independence. And uh, we're going to celebrate by eating way too many burgers and hot dogs. At least that's how I celebrate this holiday, and then we're going to blow a bunch of stuff up. Anybody else blow stuff up? You know, I'll tell you, I'll, I'll tell you um, every year, every year, as we're eating way too much food and, and we're blowing stuff up, I am reminded of this reality, that even with all the problems we have in our country and all the things that tend to divide us as Americans, I still believe this is the greatest country on the planet, let me tell you, and I'm, I am... And I'm not ashamed to tell you that I am proud to be an American, all right? I just, I am, I, I am, I am. This is also a celebratory weekend for our church family. Um, yesterday, uh, the elders and I and some of our staff and our families, we met out at the West, West Campus, our property out there, and I'm gonna show you a picture. We had our ceremonial groundbreaking yesterday, and, and did, how many of you were able to join us live? We broadcast this live. How many of you got to see the video yet? Hardly any of you. What is wrong with you? Don't you understand? What a monumentous moment. The monumentous moment is for our church. Anyway, you, that, that video is on Facebook, YouTube, and it's on our website. I want to encourage you. Go watch it. It takes about eight minutes of your day, so I think we can do that. And, um, and, and be aligned. Be unified with this moment. We met out there, and uh, these are um, all of our uh, current elders and a couple of our former elders, basically all the men in this church who have had their hand on this West Campus project for the last couple of years from start to where we are now. And so we all got to do that, and it's, it's a great video, and I hope that you'll go back and share that moment with us. Um, these are great times to be a part of New Life Christian Church. I would have loved for this moment to be shared by the whole church. Um, our original plan, if you read my email from Friday, then you know, my, our original plan was to invite the whole church out there for this big groundbreaking. We were gonna have hundreds of people out there. It's this big celebratory thing. But as it got a little bit closer, and you know, construction's a funny thing. It's hard to pin things down from time to time. And it got to the point we needed to do the groundbreaking and, and talking with our construction company and our leaders and want, we want to make sure we have a safe environment for several hundred people, and, and uh, logistically it makes sense. And honestly, we just couldn't bring all those details together where we knew it was going to be safe for everybody. So we thought, the Lord's given us some great technology, and we can broadcast this, and it's going to share it with everybody. So I hope you'll go back and watch that, and I hope that you will be praying for our West Campus. We are now starting the official construction part of it, and it's going to take about a year for this thing to be completely finished. So a lot of you have asked, like, hey, when's this thing gonna be done? About a year. So we're gonna see this thing about next summer, and then we'll give you, when it gets a little closer, you know, exactly when we're gonna launch that second campus. But man, what a, what a new day that's gonna be for us as a church and what the Lord's gonna do there. So please be praying about that. Um, also, wanna let you know that this Wednesday at six o'clock right here at the church, the elders and I are gonna be up here for a while and we're gonna have a little informational meeting. We're gonna give you the latest updates and information concerning the West Campus and timelines and just update on the whole project. It's been a while since we were able to update people in great detail. And I know that doesn't interest everybody, but for those of you that are interested in it, Wednesday night, six o'clock, we'll be here at the church and we'd love to tell you um, kind of just 
to the latest up-to-date information about this whole project, and we're looking forward to that. Well, today we have reached the final message in our Unearth series, and can I just tell you how much I have really enjoyed this series? You want to know how much fun this has been for me? And I don't know if you're used to preachers talking about preaching and fun at the same time, but I do. I enjoy it, and, and I have had a lot of fun with this series as we've unpacked archaeological evidence that backs up the Bible, and it affirms just how historical and how reliable the Bible is. And I hope that I've done an okay job shedding some light on our congregation about how archaeology, oh, thank you. We are a lively bunch today, aren't we? You know, but I hope I've done an okay job shedding light on how archaeologists are digging up artifacts all the time that prove the Bible to be true. And, um, and there has never been one historical artifact ever found in any of these hundreds of dig sites around the Holy Land and beyond that has ever disproven the Bible. No, no, just quite the opposite. All of this stuff affirms the Bible that these are real people, real places, real events, and it's awesome. So if this has sparked something in you, I know some of you have never even thought about this before we started talking about it, but it has sparked something in you. I want you to know, you can keep studying this even though we're gonna be done with it today. There are books, countless books, magazines, websites, organizations, missions, um, uh, blogs, uh, lectures, online videos. There, the information out there is so easy to get your hands on and I hope that you will continue to do this and be affirmed with every artifact that you learn about that it reaffirms your faith that what we believe is not something that we have just grabbed out of thin air. No, 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 no. There is truth that you can see and museums around the world are loaded with it and, and it's not hard information to hunt down if you're willing to do it. I, I love how biblical archaeology continues to refute some of the critics' harshest claims against the Bible. I love how one archaeologist said it. He said this, the turn of the spade, you know that little tool the archaeologists have, the turn of the spade splatters mud on the faces of Bible critics. And I think that is absolutely true. But I've thoroughly enjoyed this series, and, and I hope that you don't stop growing in it. And who knows, maybe we'll just have to revisit this in the future. We'll call it Unearth Part Two. I don't know, because we are just scratching the surface of what's available out there, and we'll see how the, what happens. But since we are bringing it to a close, I will tell you that there are a lot of things that I would still like to talk about, and I've had the hardest time with this last sermon in this series, um, exactly nailing down what I wanted to focus on and what I think would be of greatest value to our congregation. My personality is, I wanna talk about it all. And that's why you sometimes get a 50 or 60 minute long sermon, all right? Because I, I just wanna talk about it all. I'm not gonna do that today. I am happy with where we're gonna land. But I'll tell you, if we were gonna continue this series, I would have loved to have told you, told you more about the city of Capernaum. Do you know the city of Capernaum? Um, this is a beautiful town. On, right on this coast of the Sea of Galilee. This is a significant town um, that they began to excavate in great detail back in the 1860s. And um, this is the place that Jesus lived and he spent a lot of time. You're looking at an aerial view behind me. This is what Capernaum looks like today. I've been there, it's pretty awesome. You'll also notice there's still plenty of ruins that are underground. They haven't excavated the whole city, but what they have excavated is what I would say is of the greatest significance or relevance to Christians. It's a pretty awesome place. Uh, it says in Matthew chapter four, verse 13, leaving Nazareth, he, speaking of Jesus, lived in Capernaum. That's this place right here. 
which is by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And some very significant things happened here in Capernaum. This is where Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew to be disciples, right here. This is where that happened. Um, this is where Jesus healed the centurion's servant, was in Capernaum. Um, this is where Jesus healed Peter's very own mother-in-law, right here in this community. More specifically, he healed her right underneath this building here. I'll show you a little closer picture in a minute. But that's where Peter's mother-in-law was healed. This is the community where we read the famous encounter in Jesus' ministry where the crowds were gathered around him. They become so large that there were some friends who had a buddy who was paralyzed and they took him up to the roof and they lowered him down right in front of Jesus. That happened right here in Capernaum. If you visit there today, you're gonna definitely see a few things. You're gonna see Peter's house. And here's a little bit closer picture today. This is what's underneath this building. It's, it's a really cool architectural design. It's built right over Peter's house. That right there, Jesus ate with people. He healed Peter's mother-in-law right inside those ruins. Now, if I was gonna spend a whole sermon talking about this, I'd tell you all the reasons why, why we believe that to be the case. But um, it's a fascinating place to, to look with your own eyes and go, Jesus sat at a table inside there. Jesus raised Peter's mother-in-law from her, her sickly bed to come and be with them, right in there. Um, later, it was turned into a church. In fact, this building on top of it is still a church to this day, and you can walk in it and look down at the ruins. It's a pretty fascinating place. If I had more time, if we are taking more time, I'd talk about the synagogue that they found in Capernaum. And this is a fascinating, fascinating place. You guys can advance the next picture. This is what you would see today. I took this picture, and there's better pictures that you can find online. But these are the ruins of a synagogue, and Jesus did a lot of teaching in this location. It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 21, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Right there. Now, Archaeologists, like I said, in the 1860s began to excavate this. Back before the 1860s, this was so overgrown and a lot of it was underground, it wasn't noticeable that it was here, but they have unearthed it and they've excavated it. What you're looking at is the remains of a fourth century synagogue. So this was built several hundred years after Jesus. However, this was built right on top of the first century synagogue that's being referenced in the scriptures here. So this is the exact spot. And you might be wondering, how do you know that this was built right on top of the first century synagogue that Jesus taught? Well, let me show you another picture. They know this because there was a sign on the building. <laughs> when they dug it out, they found a 2,000 year old sign in English, in English. That told us that. I'm glad you guys get me. I, this would be a painful experience if you didn't get me, all right? I, this, this, this lighter color stone is from the fourth century, but if you look down the corner, do you see where the stone changes color? That is the foundation of the first century uh, synagogue, and that is the foundation of the building that Jesus would have taught in. And I'll show you the next picture, a little bit clearer view of it. Um, you see this uh, lighter color material? This is where it transitions up to the fourth century synagogue. This darker material is the foundation. So the, the synagogue that Jesus taught in is obviously the buildings destroyed, but the foundation was good. And so they built the new church, or the new synagogue rather, right on top of it. So that is the spot 
where Jesus taught. And man, you, you, if you've ever studied anything about this, there's been some really interesting things that have happened in this spot. Luke chapter four, verse 31 tells us this, they, that he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. We're talking about Jesus. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon. That's right, a man possessed by a demon showed up for church one day, right here. An impure spirit was in him. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away, what do you want from us? With us, Jesus of Nazareth. I guarantee you, people remembered church that day. <laughs> they were walking to lunch. Well, that was an interesting service. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Oh, there's a whole nother sermon here, okay. And Jesus said, be quiet, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all, all the people in church that day, and came out without injuring. And all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words are uh, these are? With authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. That happened right there. It's pretty remarkable. There are a lot of other things that happened in this synagogue. There was another time Jesus was teaching right here and a man showed up and the Bible says he had a shriveled hand and Jesus healed him on the Sabbath day, right here, which is a big no-no for the Pharisees. And in Mark chapter three, it tells us that the Pharisees were so mad at Jesus that he did something so good on the Sabbath that they left church that day and they plotted of how they might kill him. So what happened in this building was the catalyst for a movement to get Jesus killed. And let me just tell you, there is something remarkable about the experience to stand somewhere in a location that you know Jesus stood there. Great things happened there. It is, it is quite an experience. But I can tell you, I could talk about Capernaum for a whole sermon, and I'm not gonna do that. This is just saying, if we were continuing, I would tell you more stuff like that. I would tell you about Jacob's well. Maybe you've heard of Jacob's well. I know many of you have. This goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Jacob, we talk about that well there, but... We also learn about Jacob's well in John chapter four. You might remember Jesus had a conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. It's in John chapter four, verse nine. The Samaritan woman said to him, it's just the two of them there by the well, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you know Jacob's well is still in the same spot that it's always been? Wells don't move. I don't know if you knew that or not. <laughs> if you go there today, there is a church that is built on top of this well, and as like a lot of holy sites in, in Israel, and if you go inside, you can see the same well that's still there. You can enjoy a drink of water from that same well today, that's right. This well that you're seeing behind me still produces fresh, cold water after all of these years. And I am not one of these guys that gets all giddy. I'm not uh, one of these guys that feels supernatural connections to places, that is not me, okay? But you have to admit, <laughs> taking a drink of water 
from the exact same well that Jesus took a drink of water from is pretty stinking cool. All right, you'd have to admit. Now, I have not done that myself. I think on the next trip to the Holy Land, we're gonna have to stop by here and drink from this well and hope we don't get sick. But anyway, that, there's medicine for that. So anyway, if I had more time, I'd tell you, I'd tell you a lot about these places. But you know, at the end of the day, I just don't think that most people, I don't think that most Christians realize just how much physical proof there is that connects us back to the Bible. That you can walk where Jesus walked. You can walk on some of the very blocks and steps that Jesus walked, they're still there. You can look at things with your own eyes and see it the same way that Jesus would have seen it and how it's described in the Bible. So yeah, we may have to revisit this, this series in the future. Unearth part two, you let me know if that's something that you would like to see happen. We'll see what we can do about it. But, well, <laughs> well, okay, great, thanks. Um, of course, all the people that don't wanna visit this anymore are like, yeah, it's okay, it's not that interesting. We're like, well, can we clap for, what if we don't want you to? <laughs> anyway. Where I'd like for us to, to land today, um, and that's just the introduction of my sermon, now I'm gonna start. Um, no, I'm, I'm kidding, we're about halfway done. Where I would like for us to land today um, with this series is I want us to spend a few minutes looking at and talking about a historical object that very much connects early, the, some of the earliest days of Christianity to us today. And there's something about this object that I wanna show you that really and I hope I can connect it for you, speak some real truth into some of the things that we are experiencing today. I wanna to take you back to the city of Rome. I wanna take you to ancient Rome, and I want us to go backwards to about 200 AD. And uh, there's a crazy amount of church history in Rome. I hope you guys know. There's a reason why the Roman Catholic Church, home bases there, and start, there's a lot of church history. And we read about Rome in the New Testament. We know that Paul was imprisoned in Rome under one of the craziest rulers that Rome ever had, Nero, who persecuted Christians and blamed Christians for the fire in his own city. I mean, it's a crazy, there's some crazy things that happened there. For the first couple hundred years of Christianity, that we know that there were a number of Christians who were persecuted for their belief that Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. You study the history a little bit, but you know that different, different seasons, different times, who was ever the leaders, some of the persecution was more intense than others, and, and at other times it was more localized, sometimes it was spread out, but Christians in general, um, it was not a popular thing to be a follower of Jesus because Christians, they would not go along with the pagan rituals of the Romans. They would not go along with the Roman sacrifices. They would not pledge allegiance to the number of things that the Romans would and it made them targets. It made the Romans look at their religion or their faith in Jesus as some kind of superstitious kind of thing. So for the first couple hundred years of the church, there's quite a bit of history of persecution of, of Christians. We know, and there's accounts of Christians who were killed for sport, they were to, taken into arenas and coliseums and they were put to death by wild animals or torn limb from limb for sport. We know that historically. Think of the movie Gladiator with starring Russell Crowe. Think about that kind of thing. Maybe not quite as grand as the Roman Colosseum. I don't think there's any actual evidence that Christians were killed in the Roman, but a lot of different arenas. And think of that era. Did you know, by the way, and I've talked about this before, that in that movie Gladiator, did you know that there is a deleted scene from that movie? You can watch it on YouTube. There's a deleted scene that shows Russell Crowe's character, Maximus, standing kind of in the bowels of the arena, and he looks up out onto the Colosseum floor, 
and being led out onto the floor is a group of Christians, young children, men and women, and they're huddled together praying. And then you see in this deleted scene, you see a, a, a lion walking out to them and start to scratch at them, and then the scene's over. Did you know that scene was in the movie? They cut it out. The director of the movie cut it out, and he would later say, I didn't want there to be any allusions to Christianity. I didn't want the people to look at this film as if I'm making some kind of point, so he dropped it. Boy, I'd have loved it if he had left that scene in because there's something about it that speaks to a reality that some Christians had to endure for their faith in Jesus. Now, with that as a backdrop, I wanna talk about this, um, this uh, historical object that they found uh, back in 1857. So they've had their hands on this for some time. What I'm gonna show you is actually in a museum today in Rome. You can go see it with your own eyes. Um, they found it on Palatine Hill in Rome, which, which that area was the very center of Roman culture. Um, and it was like the seat of power back uh, in around 200 AD in that time frame. What they found is an ancient piece of graffiti, okay? Now, when you think of graffiti today, what do you think about? We think about like something that looks like this, right? I've got, when you think of graffiti, you think of some hoodlums with some spray paint and they're defacing a building. And you know, out of all the pictures I've showed you in this whole series, I looked harder for that than any others. <laughs> because not a lot of graffiti is appropriate for church. <laughs> I had to look long and hard for that. So, and, and actually, I think it's appropriate. I don't know. I can't read it all. It's just, but when we think of graffiti, we think of stuff like this, don't we? We think of, of, of this. But did you know that graffiti has been a problem for thousands of years? Archaeologists and all over the world are excavating sites and they find graffiti. No, it's not spray paint, but uh, people carving things, initials, letters, sayings, drawings into the walls of buildings that have survived. Are you familiar with Pompeii and uh, Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD when that was when the volcano erupted not far from Rome, it's in the same country, not far from the time that we're talking about today, 79 AD, and that volcano buried Pompeii, and that's the, the place where they've excavated all the silhouettes of the bodies that died. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about? They have excavated tons of ancient graffiti, scratchings on the wall, people goofing around, defacing property, and they found a lot of it. Um, so back to Rome, 200 AD, they're excavating what they believe was a school, and they go into this room and they start to learn everything they can. And they come across all this graffiti. And among this graffiti, <coughs> they find something very interesting. And I'm gonna show you a picture of it. This is, this is it behind me. They find these scratchings on the wall. Now over here to your left, this is the actual scratching. That's a photograph of it. And over here to your right is kind of like a pencil drawing so you can see it easier. Imagine if they put a piece of paper on top of it and they scribbled it and you'd get the impression. This is just a, a penciling so you can see. So these are the exact same thing. This one on the right just helps you see the design a little bit more clearly. And so you're looking at ancient graffiti from around 200 AD. And uh, like I said, it was found in the school and it was scratched into the wall and the wall had some plaster on it. So this was actually scratched into plaster. And this is describing an event about a, a man, a young man, a young boy, we're not really sure, but his name is Aleximenos. This is Aleximenos right here on the ground. And I'm going to tell you why in a moment, why we know his name is Aleximenos. And he is on the ground and he's looking at, up at somebody who is being crucified. 
and he has his arm up as a sign of worship. So he's worshiping who's on the cross, and the man on the cross has the, he's depicted as having the head of a donkey. All right, so this is what you're looking at. Alexaminos worshiping this man on the cross represented by a donkey's head. And the inscription that you, you can tell that it's somebody scratching this into the wall. This is not like, you know, well written. But if you look at the inscription, here's what it says. Alexaminos worships his God. Okay, now just let that sink in. Alexaminos worships his God. Just so you know that whoever carved this into the plaster all those years ago was not impressed with Alexaminos. In fact, I don't want you to think this is some kind of praiseworthy thing. No, 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 no. Whoever carved this is making fun of Alexamino. This depiction is purely pointed at Alexamino and his faith. Whatever it is, he believed. And this is a mockery of who's on the cross. This is a mockery of anybody who would believe like Alexaminos. This is a mockery of anybody who would die a shameful death as a criminal. So there's a lot of things happening here. He's worshiping what he sees as God who died a criminal's death on a cross. And there's just a whole lot of things that are interesting about this. Friends, this is what we've come to learn. This is making fun of Alexaminos worshiping Jesus as God on the cross. Now we know this because there's history about how during this time frame in Rome, there was an understanding, a mockery of Christians and they associated Jesus and the God they worship with a donkey and it was not flattering. I mean, you look at images of, nobody associates anything that's good with a donkey. You know, there's a reason why the King James Version called it something else. This is not a pleasant depiction. If you know a little bit about ancient writings and early Christians, you're gonna come across the writings of an early Christian apologist named Tertullian who lived around this time and he writes some about this and he actually talks about somebody he knows from Carthage who has made a caricature of a Christian that has donkey ears and donkey hooves on him. And on this caricature that Tertullian is writing about, that he knows this guy in Carthage who's, who makes this, is making fun of Christians, there's an inscription on this characterization of Christians with the donkey ears and the donkey hooves, and it says this, the God of the Christians begotten of a donkey. So this was actually a, somewhat of an image of ridicule of early Christians and their association of something negative with Jesus on the cross. Now, this graffiti that I'm telling you about it's not like an artifact like we've been, been, been looking at. You know, it's, I'm, I'm calling it a historical object, but there's something very significant about it. There's, there's three things, really, that are very significant about it. Like I said, this goes back to about 200 AD, which makes what you're looking at the oldest surviving depiction of Jesus on the cross. And I'll just let that sink in for just a minute. What your eyes are seeing is the earliest, or maybe more simply, the oldest depiction that we have ever found of Jesus on the cross. This depiction was carved about 170 to 175 years after Jesus died on the cross. So this is, you know, not quite two centuries removed. We're 
We're 2,000 years removed. This is a lot closer to that time. You know why else this graffiti is significant? It's significant because it's another indication that these early Christians in Rome understood something very fundamentally, something very doctrine, that, doctrinal that Jesus taught. And it's that that God and Jesus are one. These early Christians worship Jesus as God. Aleximenos worships his, his God. You remember a couple weeks ago when I told you about the oldest Christian church they ever found outside of that prison in Megiddo and they found all these beautiful mosaic floors and they found the inscription of the lady that donated the table. Do you remember? She donated it to the God, Jesus Christ. There's this, there's this, there's this something that just shouts about this that, that Aleximenos and the Christians, that they, they understood who Jesus was. He was God and he's being made fun of it. You know what else is significant about this? Believe it or not, it actually supports the Bible statements describing the crucifixion as the manner in which Jesus died. You know, there's plenty of people that would argue, how did Jesus really die? Did they use nails? Was it this? Was it that? Can we believe it? And here you have, from 200 AD, a description, a carving, as people understood, Jesus did indeed die by crucifixion on the cross. So this graffiti, it tells us a lot about different things, but you know what it doesn't tell us very much about? It does not tell us much about Aleximenos. We know virtually nothing about him other than he was a Christian who proclaimed Jesus is Lord and he worshiped him. That's what this graffiti tells us. And we know that he was mocked for it. Friends, as I look across the, the landscape of our nation these days, I believe that Aleximenos might as well be all of us. I believe that there is Aleximenos in all of us. And I sense in my spirit today, and this is not some big prophetic thing, I'm not making a problem, none of that. I just what I think. This is what I feel. I believe that Christians will see an increasing amount of slander and ridicule moving forward. I really do believe that. You know, I wasn't here last week to say this to you in person, otherwise I would have. But I am really happy about uh, Roe v. Wade being turned over. I really am. <laughs> Cody was preaching last week. Cody was doing, did he, give Cody a job, good hand. Didn't he do a good job last week? He told me later, we weren't in communication when all this came down. He goes, I wasn't sure if you wanted me to say something or let you say something, Joe. And I'm like, you could have said something. It would have been fine. But uh, he was being respectful there. And I, uh, but I wanted to tell you in person, I'm, I'm happy about it. This is, this is 50, almost 50 years of Christians praying for this. Christians every day for nearly 50 years have been praying to God, begging God, asking God to overturn this. So, we should celebrate this. This is an answer to prayer. This is something to be celebrated. And I think we also know, because we know enough about it, that this does not put an end to abortion in our country. We know that, right? Um, I understand much of the opposition to this decision. I try to be a good listener. I, I hope you guys try to be good listeners and understanding and, um, and logical as we have interaction with people. So I, I feel like I understand all the different points of view. But um, I don't know if I can answer every question because uh, I think really the answer, I would say this, I don't know how to answer every question, I just know the answer is Jesus, all right? So, um, but as I look at this, this is a victory 
for the unborn, and we should celebrate that. And I also want to tell you, friends, get ready for the graffiti. Do you understand what I mean by that? In the world's eyes, the anger over this decision is greatly focused in on Christians. So that is why I believe that now more than ever, now more than ever, Christians should be on the front lines of all things pro-life, not just talking about the womb. All things pro-life from the womb to the tomb. Friends, the church, Christians are gonna have to start putting their money where their mouth is, where we move forward. We need to continue to pray. We need to be all things pro-life from womb to the tomb. And I'll tell you, the world knows exactly what we are against. It's time for us here at New Life to show the world exactly what we are for. So this is the time that our world needs to see the very best out of Christians. Sadly, I'll tell you that over the past week and a half, um, I've just seen way too much from so-called Christians, and I choose those words purposefully. I've just seen way too much from so-called Christians who have taken to social media in the last week and a half just to shove this decision into the faces of everybody else. As if the church was some sort of political movement and the church somehow scored some kind of big political win here. That is not the church. We are a kingdom movement of Christians. We're not a political movement. And so I've been very disappointed. I've been very disappointed with some of the behavior of so-called Christians lately have just used this as an opportunity to, to just shove it in people's faces, this judgmental, unchristlike attitude. And let me just encourage you, church, don't be that way. Don't join in with others in a very unchristlike behavior. I believe that we as Christians on an individual level and on an all-church level need to figure out how we can better come alongside each of these expected mothers to love and to support them and be there for them as they make the decision to choose life and God willing to choose Christ. That's what I believe. So remember, right now, right now, even right in our community, in the neighborhoods around our church, in our community of Bella Vista, there are expectant mothers right now who are scared to death and they're trying to decide whether or not they should keep this baby or not. And they are desperately asking people to climb in their shoes and understand their situation. Do you think that any of them, any of these expected moms and expected dads, do you think for a second they would ever turn to anybody who is harsh and judgmental and uncaring and condemning and a church community that pretends like they hate them and they shove their sin in their face every time they turn around? Do you think that any of them would ever turn to people like that for help? I don't believe so. So we need to be at our very best, church. And we need to put our money where our mouth is. And I'm thankful that, that you and me, we are a part of a church community that for many years has done everything we know how to do to support um, Christian pregnancy centers, to we have poured thousands of dollars into these. We've got people in our church that have given of their time and their own resources to counsel and sit down with expected mothers and, and to be a part of pro-life ministries. We got people in our church right here that foster and adopt and I think the church is gonna have to step up and do more. I believe we're gonna have to do more than what we've ever done in the past to show the world our very best as Christians. That is what is necessary. So I'm challenging church. More from new life to get involved personally 
And financially, in our pregnancy centers, our foster and adoption ministries, other pro-life ministries, as well as to continue our efforts and ramp it up as best as we know how to continue in, in like ministries like Rise Up here at the church that focus on, on helping people who have gone through abortion to find healing and peace and new life in Christ and, and the grace of God to pour into their life and to know. And listen, if you wanna know how I feel about messing up, just listen to the botch series I preached a few months ago. That's how I feel about it. Failure is not fatal. And we need to be a church that promotes that and shows that. So uh, I am not optimistic that our nation will ever be unified on this subject of abortion. I think we've got years and years of examples of where overturning laws, writing new laws, banning behavior, legalizing it, it never really changes a person's heart. Only the Lord can do that. But what true Christians can do is show the love of Christ in the spirit of Christ and by our example and by our good attitude and our good behavior and our good deeds, we might turn the spotlight back on God and in the process winning some. Peter said it like this to the church all these years ago, 1 Peter 2.12. He challenged the church, live such good lives among the pagans, in other words, just the unbelievers, Live such good lives against those that think you're crazy for believing what you do about, about abortion. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So friends, let's be what God has called us to be. Let's love the Lord with all of our heart. Let's love our neighbor as ourself and not just with words, but with our actions. Personally, emotionally, sacrificially, and financially, the day is calling for it now more than ever. And don't be phased by the graffiti from those who think we are fools. About 150 years before Alexa Minos worshiped his God, about 150 years before this was ever made, Paul wrote this to the church in 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To a lost and dying world, what we believe about Jesus makes no sense whatsoever. Our convictions that come from Jesus' death and resurrection and the teachings of the New Testament, our convictions is foolishness to our friends and family who have yet to come under the conviction of the truth and believe and follow the Lord like we have. They don't believe and they think we're nuts that we would want them to believe like us. So friends, we need to be at our very best right now. You know, I wish we knew a whole lot more about Alexa Minos. Whatever happened to him? Did he continue on living faithfully for Jesus? Did he cave under the pressure? Did he, was he subjected to more ridicule like this? We have no idea. But I will tell you this that this ancient graffiti that they found in this school, well, it revealed one more little detail about Alexa Minos to us. As they went to the very next room and they began to excavate that room, they found more graffiti and wouldn't you know it, they found another inscription about Alexa Minos. Now, as they studied it, they realized that whoever made this was not the same person that made this inscription in the other room. You know, like forensic scientists can compare handwriting samples. Well, they knew they, somebody else made this. 
And this is what the inscription said in the very next room. It said, Alexa Minos is faithful. Alexa Minos is faithful. Now, was this Alexa Minos responding to the original graffiti? I don't know. Was this one of his buddies sticking up for him, saying, you're not gonna say that about my friend? He is faithful. I don't know. We'll never know who made this second inscription. Um, but since we don't know, I'll tell you how I think it went down, all right? This is Joe's opinion of how this went down. I think Alexa Minos comes into school one day and somebody made that and he sees it. I think it probably hurt his feelings. He goes into the next room and he thinks about it. And maybe his first response was, I'm gonna go out there and punch that guy in the face because let's be honest, that's sometimes our very first response to stuff like that. And he thinks about it, well, and I won't punch him in the face. What good is that gonna do? It's just gonna prove he's right. Does he cry about it? I, I don't know. Does in that room, does he like, maybe I should just walk away from my faith altogether? No, I think maybe it went down like this. He sees that and he says, I don't care what anybody says. He grabs his knife, carves in the plaster. Alexa Minos is faithful. I don't care what people say about me. Alexa Minos is faithful. Friends, I hope that this series has added some needed confidence to what you believe. I pray now more than ever that you'll be like Alexa Minos. I am faithful. I don't care if I'm the only person at work that believes this. I am faithful. I don't care if I'm the only person in my family who believes this and everybody thinks I'm nuts. I am faithful. I don't care if every single person that I know makes fun of my walk with Jesus. I am faithful. Alexa Minos is all of us. I am faithful. And I hope that our declaration is, and I will be faithful no matter what comes my way. I am faithful. Dear Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for your scriptures that teach us. And Lord, as we bring our time together to a close, we pray for our nation. Lord, it's obvious that our world needs you now more than ever. And Lord, we are in interesting days as a country, very divided days. And Lord, I know that, I know I can't, I don't always have the words. I don't, I don't know, Lord, and I imagine a lot of us feel this way. I don't, I don't understand, I don't know exactly how to say in response to what people say against our beliefs. Lord, we just know the answer is you. So Lord, I just pray that you help us be faithful, like Alexa Minos is faithful. But Lord, we pray for our nation. Lord, we pray for a great revival to break out in our land. Lord, we pray and we thank you that there was a reversal of that awful law all those years ago. But Lord, there's still so much to do. 
But Lord, we know that you are in control. Lord, we know that uh, we are gonna be faithful to you and we're gonna trust you in all things. So we ask, Lord, you help us be at our very best. Help us to be loving. Help us to be understanding, Lord. Help us to be sensitive. Help us to be caring and understanding, Lord. Help us to be the people that are just like you, that we are ambassadors for Christ and that when people interact with us, Lord, that will reflect your character through us. And in doing so, Lord, we might win some. Lord, I pray that you help us as a church family better understand specifically how we can be a part of the solution, how we can be an encouragement to expected mothers, how we can come alongside those that have made those decisions, and Lord, to be the church to help all find you in grace and forgiveness. Lord, we're asking for your help. Give us some guidance, Lord, and I pray for anybody in our church right now who has been praying and thinking about fostering or adopting, Lord, I pray that you give them clear direction and guidance as to what they are supposed to do, Lord. And I would pray that for us all. We give you praise, Father. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, I pray that these in front of us will become the greatest days that the church has ever seen. In Jesus' name, amen.